Hey, hello and welcome to another RFA podcast. This time we're going to be talking about what does the RFA think and how the RFA thinks and and what its opinion actually means uh, to the industry. Because we're often contacted by our members in regards to uh, certain products or things that are available in the marketplace or maybe a service that's available and they're seeking the RFA's opinion on uh, how they are thinking about moving forward in regards to uh, something that they need in their operations. So maybe that'll be the first point of clarification is that uh, the RFAs are not engineers, we're not consultants, we're basically gatekeepers to the industry in regards to their experiences and what's happening out there uh, on the front lines. So anytime that a member contacts us and says, what do you think? Uh, our job is actually to connect you with other members that may have been already down the same path that you're thinking that is uh, thinking of walking. Now, uh, the confusion comes, I suspect, because a lot of times we put out what's considered to be industry best practices or guidelines or, or direction on specific topics. So if we take a look, for example, at ice thickness, and, and that's been all over the map over the last 25 or 30 years in regards to how thick we should keep our ice. And there was a time that we were fairly adamant that a... Uh, operation should keep around an inch and a quarter to an inch and a half of ice and that was kind of a safety net uh, made us feel comfortable and in fact that we were within the industry norms and the association for years uh, through our training programs based on what we learned uh, through uh, court discussions uh, and expectations uh, through litigation that an inch and a quarter an inch and a half seemed to be that uh, sweet spot in regards to what it is that we were trying to accomplish when we were running an artificial ice rink so time marches on and we start to realize as an association based on feedback from our members that in fact uh, an inch and a quarter, an inch and a half can't be a hard sell uh, to the uh, industry. It just doesn't work uh, based on what's going on inside your facility. I mean, it's uh, some facilities are running with as much as two and a half or three inches of ice because of the caliber of uh, sport they're having inside their building. So they've evaluated what it is is uh, taking place inside their building and adjust their operations accordingly. Now, in a typical facility, an inch and a quarter to an inch and a half is probably a comfort zone that you can live with. But again, the variables comes into the type of water, um, the uh, application process is how you actually made that sheet of ice. So if you're using the industry uh, expectations of, uh, you know, good uh, water with less than five grains of hardness, and you're applying it with uh, small amounts of uh, sprays, allowing it to freeze, you're going to have a good solid dense sheet of ice so you should be fairly comfortable now wherever you land at an inch and a quarter inch and a half you got to remember that that's at the end of the day that's where you need to be at the end of the day not at the start of your shift so you may have to add a little bit of ice and so if your operators actually know how to use the ice reservoir and make blade adjustments then you're going to be able to to maintain ice thickness so it's kind of a kind of a dance that comes on now yes the orafe does come along and say hey an inch and a quarter, an inch and a half, or three inches, or two inches, uh, or provide you with other directions. But the reality is that this is information that's been vetted through our members. So the RFA is not an office down in uh, the Toronto area, right off the, the Don Valley. It, in fact, is an evolving door of practitioners who are on the front lines that are actually in the trenches applying different uh, approaches. And what we try to do is 
collect that information from a variety of different practitioners. And once we get a comfort level that this seems to be the best way to conduct business, then we make the recommendations and we build it often into our training program so that those that are following behind us have some form of uh, waypoint in regards to the way that they should be conducting business. But in the end, the RFA has got no authority to tell anybody how to operate uh, their business. All we can suggest to you is that, in fact, this is the way that you, in fact, should be conducting um, your research to figure out how things are going to best work in your world. So what you need to appreciate is that our job is to continually monitor the way that business, in fact, is being conducted. Now, the hot one that's been ongoing here for a little while is floodwater degassing equipment. And we're contacted and we have ongoing conversations and sometimes debates in regards to does this technology actually do what it says it's going to do. And at this point, the ORFA through my office, because of uh, uh, the position that I hold is uh, my responsibility is to monitor what members are saying and what's going on out there. Uh, all I can tell you is that the industry seems to be split. Uh, some are definitely believing that water degassing equipment has made their operations that much more uh, effective. And we have others that uh, are not uh, satisfied uh, after purchase in regards to what it is that uh, they believe was going to occur. So our, our job is not to play Judge Judy and suggest that you need to go from one point to the other. Our job is to, in fact, bring that information to the forefront so that again you can understand that there's that there is a, an ongoing debate amongst practitioners how you move ultimately is is uh, your business so uh, if we stay with the topic of water degassing, recently what uh, we've noted is that in fact uh, the uh, one of the uh, providers of this equipment uh, has changed its marketing materials because uh, in the beginning all of them said that you could flood with cold water directly with cold water you didn't have to have any heat whatsoever and and ultimately, uh, that has changed. And there, some of them are suggesting that there needs to be a blend valve uh, put in and you're looking for a water temperature of around 68 degrees Fahrenheit now. So it's gone from cold water to 68 degrees Fahrenheit. So that had us start to think, okay, so what's happening inside our business that potentially has got us to the point where we can use a cooler water when compared to what their traditional temperatures were. So if we look back in history, uh, we evaluated uh, the way the business was being conducted and we've come up with uh, some discussion points that you might want to put into your, your research if in fact you want to go down this pathway. So uh, I'm old enough to uh, have seen the last time the Toronto Maple Leafs, in fact, uh, hoisted the Stanley Cup, and that was back in 1967. Uh, and I watched it on a black and white television uh, at my uh, home with my uh, father. And the only thing uh, snowier than the black and white screen was, in fact, the ice at Maple Leaf Garden. 
So when I was a kid playing hockey, uh, it was not uncommon uh, for us to uh, scrape the goal crease uh, when uh, the uh, ice resurfacer had left. And the goalie would often make what we refer to as a hedgerow on both sides of the post. And the intent was to slow down the wraparound from the back of the net from anybody that was trying to tuck the puck in. And there was a hell of a lot of snow on the ice. It didn't take long after the ice resurfacer left. That snow started to accumulate on top of the ice. And then uh, we would play through uh, the conditions that uh, continually deteriorated throughout the period until the ice resurfacer came back out. Now, at the time, we had no idea why that was occurring. And and then uh, one of our uh, founding fathers to the ice making uh, uh, and painting technology course, Doug Moore, started to dive in a little deeper. And ultimately, we discovered that, you know, the fire hose is probably not the best way to make ice because it trapped too much air and it was a contributing factor to um, the snow buildup on the ice surface. What else did uh, Doug discover? He discovered the quality of water really made a difference in regards to its durability and how it was going to react as the, uh, as the game went on. Uh, so if we take a look back, uh, we didn't understand uh, how to make ice. We didn't understand the uh, variables. Now, the next one that comes into play is the ice resurfacer itself. There's been a heck of a lot of improvements to this equipment over the years. But even back in the early days, it performed very well if it was properly maintained. But most practitioners didn't understand the maintenance of this piece of equipment. If you got back into the uh, the 80s, and you talk to a nice resurfacer operator uh, in regards to down pressure, they probably look at you like you had, you know, they, they, had no, they would have no idea what the heck you were talking about. They didn't understand the importance of blade adjustment or blade sharpening. Uh, I can tell you that when I started uh, back in the, uh, the late 70s, early 80s, that we changed the blade on the ice resurfacer every month if it needed or not. That was just standard operating practice. Now, what we know today, that that was very unreasonable, especially for a facility that was dumping outside. Uh, so we changed the way that, in fact, uh, that was uh, uh, that was uh, happening inside our business, and that dramatically changed the way that we were doing things. Now, if we weren't maintaining the piece of equipment, what would happen is that uh, it did not always have the capability to pick up all of the shaved ice and snow that was on the surface. And again, if you were to talk to an, an old-time operator, they would tell you on occasion during a tournament, they may not be able to get a whole flood uh, done before they had to go out and dump because there was so much snow on the ice. Now, if we didn't maintain the squeegee, we didn't maintain the piece of equipment, the potential for a little bit of snow to be left behind was probably fairly significant. So uh, gravitating to hot water to melt that snow that was left over to try and make a very flat surface was probably the response on why we were recommending back in the day 140 to 160 degree Fahrenheit when it comes to flood water. Uh, I suspect what we were trying to do was to eliminate uh, the small amount of snow that was left over from the resurfacing process with extremely hot water. Uh, again, not 100% sure, just looking in the rear view mirror to try and figure out how we were conducting business and why we're conducting business moving forward. So, 
We've gone from 140 to 160. We discovered that, uh, you know, as an association, we were recommending that as a temperature in Fahrenheit. Uh, then we discovered the building code, and the building code suggests that, uh, or doesn't suggest, it tells you that potable water in any public facility can't be over 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So we were telling our members to jack up the hot water tank to 140 to 160 degrees Fahrenheit, and meanwhile, they were breaching the building code. So we've reevaluated uh, our advice and we've built it into our training program for the next generation that 140 to 160 still contains a heck of a lot uh, less uh, dissolved air and still recommended but you've got to wear personal protective equipment and you've got to sign the hot water uh, system so that people know that in fact it is extreme and the potential for scalding exists now time marches on uh, we've dropped it from 160 to 140 over time, saying 140 is more than satisfactory. And we've noted that now that some uh, uh, manufacturers, specifically Resurface, recommends in some of their marketing materials that a flood water temperature of 120 degrees Fahrenheit is more than satisfactory. So the, the, the cooling of the water has, uh, has started by itself based on the changes inside our environment. Uh, we uh, got good quality demification in many rinks now so we're handling a lot of that ambient hair air so any of the moisture that's in the air is being removed before it gets to the ice surface so it may allow us to actually flood with a cooler flood temperature now uh, confessing our sins we haven't evaluated this as an industry uh, in depth and so i've got to appeal to you guys as practitioners to maybe start to turn down the hot water a little bit if you are using hot water and see if there's any changes to the uh, to the ice quality. And if you do it slow enough, you'll be able to evaluate it over a period of time. And you're going to have to obviously look at different uh, aspects of the way that you're operating, how many people are in the stands, etc. Uh, but dial it back down now. If, in fact, uh, if we take a look at the degassing side of things and they're saying 68 degrees Fahrenheit works, my challenge uh, has always been to any of the members that are out there is that if you're looking at putting in water degassing, then why don't you try flooding with cooler water before you invest? Uh, I understand uh, the, 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 these pieces of equipment can run between thirty-five dollars and $40,000. So before I invest that amount of money, have I done everything in the refrigeration plant room? Have I adopted industry best practices in creating ice temperature? Am I controlling the ambient tear inside, uh, air inside the facility? And can I actually turn down the hot water and reap some of the benefits that are uh, suggested that uh, flooding with cooling cooler water are going to generate, meaning uh, less refrigeration, etc.? So what we want is we want to hear from you uh, as practitioners uh, in regards to the way that you're conducting business. You're at the, uh, the edge uh, of how things may change and uh, your experimentation, uh, a controlled experimentation, may be valuable for the next uh, generation of ice rink operators. So I'm going to leave it there. I left you with a little bit of a challenge. I'm hoping that you'll keep us updated in regards to uh, how you're conducting business. And we'll uh, be sure to share it with other members if it's got any value. And then ultimately, uh, uh, as the industry adopts uh, any type of uh, significant change, we'll determine if, in fact, uh, it will go into our certification courses. So that'll do it for now. Thanks for joining me. 
Uh, hopefully, uh, you're enjoying uh, the reopening of uh, our buildings uh, as we uh, turn the corner from COVID. And, uh, you know, let's wrap up uh, the spring of 2022 and get ready for an exciting uh, fall uh, uh, ice season as we move on. Till then, stay safe. Thanks for joining me. Take care. Thank you.